series in the Sermon on the Mount today. Um, we're actually kind of starting a new section of the Sermon on the Mount that I think is gonna be good for us. Uh, so we're going through the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, right? But we've, we've slowed down and we're taking our time working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' most famous public teachings. And essentially, if you were to distill the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount down to one idea, it comes down to Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what it looks like for people to actually follow after God, live into his kingdom, live into his design for them. It's this description of what our communal life together as brothers and sisters, as children of the living God, actually looks like. And so we just finished up this section where Jesus was speaking into some of the kind of understood or assumed biblical interpretations of his day. We went through this whole section where Jesus kept saying things like, you've heard it taught like this, you've heard it said like this, you've been taught that the Bible says this, but I'm telling you, you guys have missed it. Here's what it really says. Here's what the kingdom really looks like. And he's gone through and been clarifying some of these pieces that in his day were really specific cultural issues that the religious leaders of the day were just missing God's heart in the scripture. Well, now he's transitioning to a new section where he's going to speak into, not from perspective of, oh, here's some things your leaders have gotten wrong, but here's some aspects of life, some spiritual practices, some communal practices that are important for the believer. He's gonna spend some time just digging into some of these specific, important practices of living a kingdom life. And what we're gonna to do today is we're actually gonna look at a longer chunk of text. We're gonna look at several of these teachings lined up because there's this common thread that Jesus weaves through three of them that I think is important for us. And so what you're gonna to notice today is we're actually gonna skip the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is a pretty important text in the Bible. So we're actually gonna back up next week uh, and spend that whole time talking about prayer. But today, we're gonna look at this larger chunk because there is this thematic lens that, or this, this the kind of thematic piece that Jesus weaves through this part. He's, he's gonna talk about uh, giving and serving, then he's gonna talk about prayer, and then he's gonna talk about spiritual disciplines. But there's a common piece he weaves through all three of these teachings that I think is important for us. And essentially, what we're gonna see in this common thread is Jesus saying, look, if you're gonna live for the kingdom, you are going to learn to live righteously. You're gonna to learn to engage in spiritual practices. Don't do that for people, right? Don't, don't do the work of being spiritually disciplined for the sake of your reputation. It's not worth it. He says that's not the reward you're seeking. That's not, you don't do that stuff to get good standing in your community. You do that stuff because it delights God, because you wanna to connect to him. So we're gonna look at serving and giving, prayer, spiritual disciplines, and we're gonna see what Christ is really pointing us to is, man, there is a reward awaiting those who live the kingdom life, and that reward is Christ. See, beloved, he sees your spiritual practice. He sees the way you live your life. He sees the way you strive and seek to be a holy person and all the ways you fall short of that. Like Christ sees the effort that we do put into our practice of faith. And the beautiful thing is because of the gospel, the God who sees is the God who delights in the work you do to live in the kingdom. Because he delights in it. That is, that is the reward, the connection of Christ, the delight 
of Christ. Beloved, you were made to find your deepest fulfillment, your deepest joy in the glory of Christ. We just did a whole series on that, right? Like that is part of God's design for you. That is the reward. That's the reward we should be seeking, right? Connection to him. So pray with me, and then we're gonna walk through this, starting in the beginning of chapter six, we're gonna walk through this chunk by chunk. Father, we ask today as we take a few minutes to dig into your word, Lord, we ask that you would be our discipler today. Spirit, we are spending a few minutes looking at this sermon that you preached, that you gave to your people to say, this is what my kingdom looks like. And Lord, we want to be kingdom people. We want to be the kind of people whose lives are bent around your kingdom teaching, around this way of life you've built us for. So God, we pray today you would give us humble hearts, you give us open ears, that we would hear from you what our hearts actually need, that we would be challenged by you to walk in, your, walk in holiness, walk in, walk in seeking you as our reward. Spirit, we need you for this work. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm gonna, instead of reading the whole text and talking about it, there's a lot going on here. So I'm gonna read a chunk and then we'll stop and talk about it. So we'll start in the first verse of chapter six. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Now this is a transitional piece of Jesus moving from the last section to the new section, and he's giving us in this first verse an overview of exactly where he's going for the next little bit of this. This whole section is telling us the life of the kingdom involves living righteously, so we're gonna have acts of righteousness in our life. But then Christ says, we're to be careful, careful when we live righteously. Careful that we're not doing it for the crowd. We're not doing it for those watching us. We're not doing it for our reputation. If you do, Jesus says, this part I think is interesting. If you do it that way, if your acts of righteousness are for the people, then God won't reward you. Now, that's an interesting phrase. We're gonna sit in that for just a second. But, but as we see, as we walk through these next sections where Jesus speaks into kind of these three different categories of, of righteous living, of spiritual practices, th there's gonna be some stuff that we need to be on the lookout for. We're gonna use this first verse, this overview verse, to kind of guide us through these next sections. We're gonna ask ourselves questions like, man, where do we need to be careful in this area of our faith? How can this kind of righteous living be turned toward impressing others? How can it be turned toward the Lord? And then this question I think is really pivotal for us. What is the reward we should be seeking? It's a question we should ask often when we consider our spiritual practice. Guys, that question's important for us. Jesus here is really plainly making reward seeking part of the motivation for our righteous living. Now, can we, can we sit in that for a second? That's an interesting point for us because as modern Western people, that is immediately distasteful to us. We, we just kind of, as a default, categorize reward-seeking as an inherently selfish and thus non-moral or non-righteous motivator, right? If someone's like, well, I'm doing it for what I get out of it, you're like, okay, so you're selfish. Like that's, that's a kind of a cultural assumption. But what's interesting here is, guys, that idea is not a biblical idea. That comes from Greek philosophy. That's Aristotle and Plato, the idea that you should not be motivated by self-gain. That's, that's something that comes from secular philosophy, not the scriptural teaching. 
The Bible is actually unashamed that there's nothing wrong with seeking rewards. You just need to seek the right rewards. This is connected to what theologian John Piper calls Christian hedonism. I think this is actually a really helpful idea for us. And it comes back to what we talked about in our whole little mini-series on glory. glory. The idea is that because humans are designed by God to glorify him, like that's in our design, it's inherent to how he built us, the human beings find our deepest joy, our deepest fulfillment, our deepest like, satisfaction in glorifying God. In other words, living the righteous kingdom life is so fulfilling to the human heart that it is in and of itself a reward, that it's, it's worth seeking out, it's pleasurable, it's fulfilling, it's joyful for a human to say, I wanna give myself over to the kingdom, I wanna give myself over to following Christ. That is a reward, and guys, it's a reward that we should be seeking out. It's a reward you were built for. So let's walk through each of these examples Christ gives and just see what we're gonna find with regards to seeking our reward in Christ. So verse two through four, this is where he's gonna talk about giving to the poor. It says this, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus starts this section by pointing out uh, this idea of giving our money to the poor, right? If it's, if it's done with fanfare to draw attention to you and how awesome you are, like, that's not a good thing. And that seems kind of like, that's kind of intuitive to us, right? Like, we see the bank go for the photo op where they write like the four foot wide check and like have the picture taken, shaking hands while they're handing it to the charity and you're kind of like, eh, that's slimy, right? There's something in us that like inherently gets this. But I think we need to understand something here. This, is, this whole idea is actually a little larger than just the idea of giving money to the poor. This phrase was kind of a shorthand in Jesus' day. It did, in fact, by the way, really, it really did refer to giving money to poor people. Like that was uh, this, this phrase of like giving alms or providing for the poor. It did mean that, and it meant that for a very specific reason. You know, the, the Roman Empire didn't have much of a social safety net in place, right? And so in Judea, it was the synagogue system, the congregation system that took it upon itself to care for the impoverished in their community. And so they would collect money and administrate it out to meet people's physical needs with housing and food, but also to meet larger needs like education and access to care for people who are sick and things like that. And it was the church, or not the church, but the synagogue that, that did this work for the community in Judea. And so people would give to their synagogue, not just to support what was happening in the synagogue, but to support this work the synagogue was doing in the community. And all that work, by the way, was exclusively run by volunteers, it was the members of the synagogue that, that spent the time divvying up the food and running the classes for the children and doing all those sorts of things. And so when they use this phrase, giving to the poor, it's kind of the shorthand for this larger system that was assumed in Jewish practice that really just looks very similar to supporting your local church, right? Like giving to your church and serving and showing up and doing those sorts of things. So what we see in this is that giving and serving in the local synagogue, because it was considered a foundational standard 
of personal holiness in the religious environment of Jesus' day. This was an assumed thing, that whatever you had to give, you would give. That's how you cared for one another. But what would happen in many synagogues is that the wealthy would make a big show of their donations. There's actually a whole scene in Luke where Jesus sits his disciples down at a synagogue and says, let's watch these rich people be idiots for a minute. (laughs) And they watch these guys parade up to give their gifts, jingling their money bags as they walk or with servants behind them holding the boxes of all the different things they're tithing, right? Like they made a big deal out of it showing, look how holy I am, look how much I offer up to the church all these different things. Jesus pushes back on this idea. And here's the thing, guys. I think the point here is pretty obvious, right? If that happened in our midst, if church got out and someone like had one of those canned air horns, was like, hey, real quick, everyone, just want to let you know, putting in my tithe check and just like dropped it in the box in the back. Like, I think all of us would be like, "Mm, someone needs to have a talk with Lucas about this. Sorry, Just bud. Because I'm the guy who have an <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Jesus is saying here something that's pretty obvious, right? If you're giving your money or anything else, giving of your time, giving your person, for the purpose of impressing people, then, guys, impressed people is what you get out of that. If you're, if you're giving and serving for the purpose of impressing people, then impressed people is your reward. That's what you get. That's what you're seeking, and that's what you get. You'll notice Jesus' solution here, right? He doesn't say not to give. He says, be careful how you give. He doesn't say, don't do this. He says, be careful. Giving and serving, guys, they're not for the applause. Heck, they're not for the recipients of the gift. I need you guys to hear this piece because this is really important. It is so easy when you think of, essentially what we're talking about here, right, is the charity aspect of our faith. That we sacrifice of our money and our time to benefit those in need. Guys, what Jesus is pointing at here is that when we give of ourselves, we're not doing it to impress other people, to show how spiritual we are, but we're not even doing it for the people in need. I mean, here's the thing. The people in need are recipients of that, and that's wonderful, and we should have compassion. But ultimately, ultimately, the purpose of this is to glorify God. It's to please Him. So He says, "Do it. Do your giving. Your like, do it in secret. Don't let anyone. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be careful how you give. That your giving be in secret. And then here's the reason why." so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Guys, when you give and when you serve, yes, there are people who receive real benefits from that. And that's a wonderful thing and we should celebrate that. But hear this, when you give and when you serve, you are giving and you are serving unto God himself. Beloved, it is for him. When you give and you serve right now, right here in our time, in our space, in our church family, it is for Christ. When you give financially to Emmanuel or any gospel organization, you're not primarily doing it for the work. Now, don't get me wrong. If 
you write a check to IFC, you're helping support the work in Colombia. You're helping support Win the Saints in Malawi. You're helping fill up our counseling fund, our benevolence fund. You're helping make sure that Tanel children have like food to eat. Like there's all sorts of practical things that come out of that. But it's not primarily about those things. If you write a check, if you're giving to IFC, you're giving to Christ. When you show up to serve, on a level, yes, you're walking in the building, you're loving and serving kids, you're playing songs, you're clicking slides, you're making coffee, you're doing yard work out behind the church, you're hosting a small group. All those things are real and they're happening. But beyond that, when you show up to serve, you are showing up to render your time and your service unto Jesus himself. You're giving to him. So be careful when you give. Be careful when you serve. Don't do it for the people. Do it for Christ. Do it for Christ because, beloved, Christ sees. He sees your labor. He sees your sacrifice. He knows how much that financial gift costs you. He knows how much the time you spent serving could have been used in other things that are beneficial and important to you. Christ sees what is done. And beloved, the Lord who sees you is the Lord who delights in you and the Lord who rewards you. Okay, starting to verse five, prayer. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to the Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Because your Father knows the things you need before you even ask him. Let's talk prayer for a second. Now, Jesus, if you look in your text, goes on kind of a rabbit trail here. He kind of like steps away from this larger teaching and he gets into examples of prayer and he gives the Lord's prayer and gives his teaching on forgiveness and it's really good, but we're gonna skip that today and talk about it next week. It's vital important, I think, for us to camp out in this larger text because I think there is something here in what Jesus is talking about our giving, our serving, our prayer, our spiritual disciplines that I think is just important for us. In our text right here, Jesus tells us to be careful with our prayer. And you notice he gives two warnings about prayer. He says, first, be careful not to make your prayers about the people in the room who hear them, right? This is kind of feeding off the same idea he just said. And by the way, that's a really easy temptation. As a pastor, I'm gonna tell you guys, that's a really easy thing to fall into to pray for the people in the room. And I guarantee if you've been in church more than 10 minutes, you've heard this before, where someone stands up in church or in a small group and they start praying and you have this moment where you're like, I think they're talking to me, not God, right? Like they come up to pray and really they're just like, man, here's like three things Jim should have said in his sermon. I'm gonna say them real quick in this prayer. Just like slip them in there, you know? It's really easy to fall into that trap to make the prayer about the people in the room with you versus the God you're actually talking to. And I'm saying this is like, yeah, that's been me before, so sorry. First warning there. I, I think, by the way, I think of that, that idea of like praying that way. It reminds me of when people passively, aggressively talk to you as a parent through your child. If you have little kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is when like you're just in survival parenting mode 
and you're sitting there in the grocery store and your kid has one shoe on and snot smeared down their face and they're in like full, just like Lord of the Flies mode. And some sweet stranger walks up and bends down and looks at your kid and goes, aw, your dad didn't put two shoes on you today. I bet that's really annoying for you, isn't it? And you're sitting there going, really? You think my 18-month-old cares about that, huh? That's, that's similar to what we're talking about here, right? Like when you pray and you're talking to God, but really you're talking to the people in the room, right? Some of you are like, hey, I've, I've done that to your children, Sam. That was, yeah, that was for you. Stop, stop that. I need you to stop that. <laughs> warning one. When you pray, don't pray for the people in the room. The second warning, though, he gigs even into our private prayers when it's just you and God. He says, don't use long, fancy strings of words as a way to try and manipulate God. Man, that's an easy one. That's an easy one to fall into, Right? How e- like, like we can make this kind of the stereotype and think about the person we know who prays in King James and be like, oh, this is for them. No, 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 no. I mean, it might be for them. But what this really is about is those moments where you really want God to do something for you. And so you think, what do I have to say to show God that I am holy and penitent enough that he'll listen to me right now? Okay, I probably need to make sure I spend some time confessing all the terrible things I've done and telling him how grateful I am so that I can get to my request and he'll be kind of, kind of buttered up for the request because these ones are pretty important. It's really easy to do that. It's really easy to think that your current level of sin, repentance, holiness is gonna affect how much God does or doesn't interact with you in your prayers and to bend your prayers toward trying to get back on his good side before you tell him the stuff you want. Because this is what Jesus is getting at here. You won't be heard because of your many words. You're not gonna trick God into doing something you want him to do because you said the right words or put him in the right order. God is not a vending machine and you are not a wizard who can do an incantation. You are dust and flesh and he is the God of the universe. And as Jesus says here, he already knows what you need and what you want and what you long for before you ever open your mouth. (laughs) You're not gonna say it in such a way that you bring new information to God, right? He already knows where your heart is at. So I think this is an interesting thing though. Because you notice, I I think this part's important. I don't think Jesus is telling you not to pray in public or pray beautifully. Like, and here's the reason I think he's not telling you those things. In this text, Jesus prays beautifully in public, right? Like that's the part we just skipped over. Is he's like, let me tell you what a prayer looks like. And then he prays the Lord's Prayer in public for like however many thousands of people are there. And read the Lord's Prayer. It's very beautiful, right? Like he uses beautiful language in there. God's not telling you not to pray with other people or not to use beautiful language in your prayer. What he's telling you is, why are you praying? Are you being careful in your prayer? What is your motivation? What's the goal? You turning your prayer toward people or toward God? Are you trying to appear holy and mature to other believers or to God himself? Is this a trick to manipulate God into giving you what you want? So look at Jesus' solutions here. Pray privately, pray simply. Don't try and impress. Don't try and manipulate. If If you're not praying to impress and you're not praying to get stuff, Why are you praying? (laughs) What motivation is left over? 
I would say this. You're praying to connect with God. You're praying to talk to him. Because this is why private prayer works, because you worship a God who sees you. The actual word there he uses when he says, go in private, lock yourself in the room, it's the, it's the word for pantry. It's like, go in your pantry, lock the door, sit by yourself. I think I would be a little too distracted, because there are animal crackers <laughs> in there. But maybe that helps. Maybe that's spiritual, I don't know. But guys, when you pray... And I'm gonna say this includes your public prayers and a worship gathering and small group times and all that stuff. Pray to seek the heart of God, to connect with the heart of God. Not to show how spiritual you are, not to try and get your to-do list done, not to try and receive all of these things. You pray because you wanna connect with God. And I need you guys to hear, like this part is really important. Beloved, God likes you. (laughs) Yahweh likes you cares about you. And because he likes you, he likes to hear from you. I think it's easy when you, when you dig through this teaching to be like, well, okay, so it's just about me and God, but I'm not supposed to be manipulating him into getting what I want. But he already knows what I need. Like, I'm not giving him any new information. So what's the point? The point is connection. The point is that God enjoys you, that he delights in you, and he delights to connect with you. For those of you who have uh, been parents, think about the conversations you have with your three-year-old. There's not very often that new information is being added into your relationship in those conversations, unless it's them revealing to you something gross they ate when you weren't looking. It's, right, it's not a terribly intellectually stimulating conversation, yet who doesn't delight? Who doesn't delight in just connecting with their child, right? God likes you. God delights in you. When you pray, you pray to the God who made you and sustains you. He already knows what you're thinking. He already knows what you need. When you pray, you honor and delight him. You don't inform him of new things. Prayer is a blessing, guys, because it glorifies God. Because it's something he delights in. It's something he enjoys. And you will find, beloved, because of how you were made, that glorifying God is the reward. Taking time to pray and tell your real and true heart to God won't change what he already knows about your real and true heart, but it will connect you to his heart. And you'll find that it, that it begins to bend you and shape you toward his heart, toward his will. Again, Jesus gives this amazing example of what this looks like in the Lord's Prayer, and we're gonna come back to that next week. But for our purposes today, let's keep moving through this, jumping to verse 16. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to the Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This last one is super interesting. Jesus says to be careful with our fasting. He says that if you, if you make your hardship in fasting, super obvious, so that people praise your spiritual discipline, then that's your reward, right? If you're seeking to impress people, impressed people is your reward. So we're getting back to this reward language, right? Jesus says that our fasting, like our giving, our serving, and our prayer, should be secret. 
It's not for others. So don't make it obvious that you're fasting. Then the God who sees you, who sees all, the God who is in secret, he will reward you. Now, hopefully at this point, you're already like, okay, I get where this is going, right? Yeah. Jesus is really bluntly and clearly speaking about the idea that the Christian discipline of fasting is to glorify God, right? But there's actually some, some more here also. See, fasting was a normal and expected spiritual discipline in Jesus' day. Most faithful Jews would fast at least once a week. And so it kind of became the shorthand for referencing just spiritual disciplines in general. And he references other spiritual disciplines in this text, right? We've just talked about prayer, we've talked about serving in the church and giving and those sorts of things. But fasting was kind of a way, because it was so normal and so regular in the religious life, it was a way of kind of just saying, yeah, the way you practice your faith, right? And so as we hear him talking about fasting, listen, I'm not giving you a cop out here. Christ is talking about fasting and he's talking about with an expectation that you would do it, right? Like that's a spiritual discipline that most Americans just kind of don't. We kind of skip that one. But Jesus assumed you would. And so that's worth considering. But I wanna make sure we also see that he is talking here about this larger idea of spiritual disciplines. And I think this would include things like your Bible reading, your prayer journaling, your involvement in community and things like that. These are all similar to fasting in that they all apply to what Jesus is teaching here. Because it's, it's easy to practice your spiritual disciplines for others to see and thus to build your reputation. If you are a church person, if you have a lot of your community and friendship and relationships built around church life, it is easy to fall into the trap of displaying your faith to build your reputation. It just is. And go down the list of the stuff we've talked about. They, they, those may not all be temptations to you, but the areas of your life where you're more spiritually gifted, where it comes more naturally to you, it is just easy to put those things on display to build your reputation. Even if you're a shy, quiet person, even if you're not a proud, boastful person, because when we display those things, our brothers and sisters around us give us attaboys, right? Wow, that's amazing. You, like, you actually read your Bible? I don't know, I really struggle with that. It's really hard. That's really cool to me that you do that. It's easy to display parts of your spirituality to build your reputation. Jesus is telling us here really bluntly, be careful, be careful. Your spiritual disciplines don't exist to build your reputation. They don't exist for others to see and think about how awesome you are. And guys, this doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't or shouldn't talk about your spiritual disciplines. Quite the opposite. Talking about your spiritual practice is a way of helping encourage and challenge the church around you. You should be having conversations about the areas of your life where you're connecting with Christ, where you're finding life and joy and freedom, where your spiritual gifting syncs up with the spiritual discipline because that is how, part of how we challenge each other and hold each other up to grow in our faith. That is a good thing. You should be talking about those things together. But you always have to be careful. I think that's how Jesus frames this teaching on purpose. It's not that you shouldn't give and serve. It's not that you shouldn't pray. It's not that you shouldn't practice spiritual disciplines. It's that you should be careful when you do them. You should be careful. And you should ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? If you do discipline to grow your reputation, 
then a grown reputation is all the reward you get. But when you engage in your spiritual disciplines quietly, secretly, and hear this church, for Christ, if you, seek, if you do them for people, if you do them for reward, people reward reputation is your reward. If you do them for Christ, beloved, Christ is your reward. Christ who sees in secret, sees what you do. Your effort is not wasted. He sees it and he rewards it and he rewards it with himself. Guys, this means your work and let's be honest, it is work. Everything we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, what what it means to to live righteous lives, to seek to love the other, to be obedient to scripture, to to work to kill our sin and our idols and be holy. That's hard work. It is. And what we see here, guys, is that your work to connect with Christ, to grow in holiness, to live into the kingdom, beloved, that work is never wasted. Because let's be honest, we're all pretty bad at a lot of it, right? We're pretty bad at a lot of it. And a lot of times we find ourselves failing more than we succeed and living into our idols more than we kill them. And living into selfishness more than selflessness. A lot of times our work feels wasted. And so man, it's just easier to go over the lower shelf and try and impress people and serve God. Maybe that's just me being confessional, but I, I think there's truth there. What we see in this text, beloved, is that your work for the kingdom is never wasted. It's never wasted. You may look at your prayer life, your Bible reading, your spiritual disciplines, and you may just think about how poor you are at them. Oh, I forgot again. Oh, I got distracted. I do the work to read my Bible, but I just don't even get anything out of it. I'm not smart enough. I guess I'm just not spiritually mature enough. I don't know, season of life just makes, I just can't do this. Beloved, when you engage in the disciplines simply because you know they please God, not because you're good at them, not because you're great at them, not because you're getting a ton out of them, simply because you know it delights God when I fast, it delights God when I read his word, it delights God when I speak to him, it delights God when I give and serve, and so I'm going to because I want to delight God. Beloved, he sees that. Even when you're bad at it, it's not wasted. And beloved, hear this, you are rewarded. You're rewarded for glorifying God because glorifying God is the reward and it's the most fulfilling reward. So step back with me to this whole text. What's the common thread? I mean, don't be a hypocrite, right? Like, don't do these things for human reputation. Do them for God to see. Kingdom living, beloved, is for God. It's for Jesus. And that is why it's so rewarding. It's why it's so good. It's why it's the good life. You see, guys, God's not like, it's not like he's being spiteful and withholding a reward from people because they choose to serve others versus him, to do their spiritual practices for people. It's not like God sees that and is like, oh, nope, 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 nope. He was selfish with that. He doesn't get a reward. Like, it's not that. It's the idea, guys, that intimacy with God is the reward. So if you are ignoring God and seeking to please others, for them to see your righteous living, their praise can be your only reward. You have cut yourself off from the true reward, connection with Christ. 
Because as we kind of land this out, I want you to remember this phrase Jesus repeated in our text today. God sees. He said that each time, right? God sees what you do. This is a, a biblical, biblical way of saying there are no secrets from God, right? He knows everything. But there's more to this. In, in Genesis 16, there's this really beautiful story about God's sight and how God's sight speaks into human sin and injustice. You see, in Genesis 16, you're stepping into the time of the patriarchs. God had promised a supernatural heir to Abram in his old age. But rather than wait on God's timing, Abram's wife, Sarai, had schemed with Abraham and gotten, and gotten uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar, pregnant so they could have a kid by him. And it worked. Hagar got pregnant. But then Sarah became jealous and began to abuse Hagar and treat her horribly. And Abraham, in his own sin, did nothing to protect her and nothing to solve the problem. So in the midst of this, Hagar, who is a slave, who had no choice in this matter, can't take it anymore, and she runs away into the wilderness. And so you pick up in this scene with this young, impoverished, pregnant woman sitting in the desert by herself, weeping, calling out to God. She has no help, she has no protector, and God himself chooses to speak to her. God appears in the wilderness and he speaks to Hagar. He sees the injustice she's experienced. He sees what she's experienced. And then he promises blessing for her and her son. And Hagar, in that moment, names God. And that's a big deal in the Old Testament. And she calls him El Roy, the God who sees. There's something really beautiful about that. You see, God's sight the fact that nothing is secret before God, that he sees all things. That's not this judgment thing. That's not God being like, whoa, I can see every terrible thing about you. That's awful, yuck. That's not it. God does see all the terrible things about you. But the response is not judgment. See, God's sight is about care. It's about his compassion. It's about the fact that God sees all the worst parts of you. There is nothing hidden before him. He sees every bit of you, the bits of you that you would die before anyone else knew, that you would take to the grave 10 times over before you'd speak them in public. God sees them all, and his response to you in his sight is compassion and care. His response to you in Christ is delight. You are my beloved. He knows everything about you. He knows the worst things about you. He cares for you. God sees, he really sees, he really sees you, all of you. And in Christ, his response is contentment, enjoyment, delight, satisfaction. Beloved, I, I just feel like in a space like this, some of us just really need to be reminded that God is satisfied with you. He is. You cannot outsin God's love for you. You cannot crush his image that he has placed in you. You don't have enough power to supersede the love he poured out for you on the cross. God is satisfied with you in Christ. I'm gonna land us with this text from Hebrews 4. And it starts with a verse that's really famous, but it goes somewhere I think we need to hear. It says this in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God, and by the way, we read this text and we talk about it, we use it to talk about the Bible, and it is talking about the Bible, but the word of God is also a way of talking about Christ. Christ is the word of God made flesh. 
For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, for no creature is hidden from God. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees all. And that's heavy. And for many of us, we hear that and we go, oof. There's a whole lot of me that I don't want God to see. But the text doesn't end there. It goes on to say, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Even though God sees you naked and exposed and sees every piece of you, the good and the bad, the worst bits of you, because of Jesus, you hold fast to your confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. God's sight does not bring about his judgment. God knows you are dust. He knows you are human. He knows you are crushed by the curse. He knows what it feels like to live in an unjust, terrible world. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Beloved, the sight of God the way he sees you, sees every bit, leads to his compassion, his grace, leads to the gospel. So, to land this out, as we seek to live the Christian life, because that's the thing, there is a Christian life. That's what Jesus is describing in this sermon. There is a way that God wants his people to live. And it's hard. It's impossible outside the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. As we seek to live this life, you need to know, guys, you need to know how much he loves you. You need to know that he sees you, that he sees your struggle. He sees you seeking the kingdom. He sees you trying and failing. He sees you taking one step forward and three steps back. He sees your ups and your downs, your days of faithfulness and holiness and your days of selfishness and idolatry. He sees every bit of it. And in Christ, beloved, he's pleased with you satisfied with you. You are not unseen and you are not unimportant. The God of the universe knows you're coming and you're going and he delights in them. So beloved, jump into the kingdom feet first. Give to those in need. Serve your church. Pray often about everything. Fast and engage in the spiritual disciplines. Do all these things even though just like me, you're bad at them. The reward is not how spiritual you are. It's not how much this church will look up to you, beloved. The reward is Jesus. He's with you in the work. He delights in your labor. He delights in you. I just believe that's delightful. Chris, you want to come up here? I'm going to invite us to take just a couple minutes to land this time out with just some prayer. I don't have a specific prompt for you other than just I want to encourage you to take the time you need to take right now to connect with Christ. I would encourage you to find in this space right now just the way you need to, like find some space for you to be with Jesus. If you can do that in your seat, that's awesome. If you need to find some space to get on your knees, if you want to grab one of our pastors to pray with you, you're welcome to do that. But I want to encourage you just to take 
just a couple minutes right now and talk to Christ about this. Talk to him about how he sees you and what that sight inspires in him. Talk to him about what it looks like for you to seek the kingdom and why you might do it. And then we're gonna end our time as we always do. Beloved, meet with Christ and do the work you need to do this morning.